0: chapter 5, starting in verse number 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take... The prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment.
1: think I'll move over Uh, because Jane said the light was shining on my face last week, I said well that's a good thing but she thought not I think any improvement in my face would help (laughs) but there you go (coughs) now I keep losing this remote I found it (laughs) there you go what would I do without Jane, she finds my there you go Yeah. Now, I'm in a good spot now, Jane. Right. Wow, I can't believe this, but uh, this week we have to skip town again. It's a fuzzy goodbye because it's kind of, I had tears in my eyes when I put it up there, but uh, we're sad to say goodbye. Jane and I have to leave, I think tomorrow we're heading off to Boca, not quite up north for a day or two. Uh, But Lord willing, if he be not come, given the passage I have today, I must add that, we will return. Um, Lord and Malcolm and some of the elders willing, anyway, we will return. Uh, But one thing I can assure you about is, there's no, I say hopefully I'll return. But there's no doubt about the Lord coming. And this passage you've given me, you give me a great passage today, this assignment seven through twelve is really about how to wait for the Lord's return. And we wait in certain hope, no uncertainty. I say, hopefully we'll return. Certainly he'll return. And this focus, the, the focus of the passage this morning is actually on three things that we should be doing While we're waiting for the Lord to return. It tells us in verse 7, you wait patiently. It says in verse 8, you stand firm. And it says in verse 12, hey, whatever you do, be totally honest. So there's a very practical challenge uh, for us this morning. To wait patiently, stand firm, and be totally honest. But I want you to note very, very carefully the context. This is not just a, an arbitrary list. It's it's saying you've got to be ready for the return of the Lord. So it's not just a reminder. You might think James is just saying, "Well, you try and be a patient person." It's much more than that. <clears throat> it's a call to to stand back, see the big picture. The Lord's promises that He's going to return for His own, and in light of that, we wait patiently. So, verse 8, you know, in verse 8, James reminds us that the Lord's coming could actually be at any moment, any time. And he makes it clear in verse 9 that, that you've got to live actually like the judge is standing at the door. So, I found this a very challenging passage as I realized what James is really trying to do here is point forward, look up to the moment when Christ returns. And that's incredibly important advice, to, to keep looking up, keep looking for that moment. And it's, it's really saying, look, I want to encourage you to live with patience, even if you face injustice, even if you're suffering while you wait, because you can live in the light of that wonderful hope, the climactic moment that will happen, and maybe soon, the coming of Christ. Such a great encouraging message, and especially today, you know. Today we're besieged by evil groups. And there are groups out there, unbelievable. Never thought I'd see it in my lifetime, killing little children for a perverted ideology. And so I'm hearing people say more and more to me, a, a good but challenging question, why doesn't God do something? Here's a, a young teenager, hardly 13, being trained. To kill. And especially to focus on Christians. And you know, Why doesn't God do something? And I was reading this week about ISIS training mentally challenged children as suicide bombers. And you, and you say, how can this be? These people are the same race as me. Why doesn't God do something? We all ask that. Well, I do want to remind you, of course, that He has done something and He will do something. I mean, if you ask that question... You have to remember very definitely he's done something because the cross of Christ and the promise of Christ's return they're actually central to God's action plan to deal with evil. Don't think evil will be left undealt with. The beginning of that is the cross and the culmination is the return of Jesus and they're certain and central events because Christ's certain return is for all of us like the light at the end of the tunnel. It, it is seeming like a dark tunnel at times. I see the news and I, I just feel, where is this going? But I know the answer because of the scriptures. Christ's sudden intervention when the curtain falls on this world's hopes and expectations. i got to tell you, it's going to be very different from what many expect. You see, because actually what the Bible teaches about what's going to happen is, is opposite to the world's view of history. The world's view of history is, um, the modern view of history is, well, we'll make progress. There'll be development. Well, there'll be, be gradually, there'll be evolutionary improvement. That's an that expectation. and then there's, there's, A lot of people are scoffing at this promise that Christ will come back and sort everything out. Because, you see, when you go to the Bible, God's Word, history is presented in a very different perspective than the secular one. History in Scripture, it's not cyclical, it's not meaningless. It's going somewhere. I hear historians talk about how haphazard history is. And, 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 and really, we can't learn a lot from it. History is going somewhere. And it's very clear. The biblical view of history is built on God's promises and God's plans and he will do something. He didn't create this universe for nothing. Christ, and of course, he's already stepped into history. History is his story. That's what it, His story. He stepped and he made that cross of Jesus where Jesus died for your sins and mine, the pivotal event that does ensure a new dawn. So in these dark days, remember the dawn comes, and it's a foundation, the cross is a foundation on which God's purpose to have a people for himself will be built. And he will step in again. And if you're not part of that kingdom, if you haven't understood that Jesus died for you on that cross, we've got to talk. Because you need to be on the inside track. And you need to be ready because the return of Christ, you know the return of Christ is a central truth in the New Testament. Over 300 times it talks about the fact that Jesus will come again. What saddens me, you know, I've been in, in evangelical churches, assemblies like this all my life, became a Christian as a youngster, uh, and as I've travelled around and talked to people and preached, I, I, I see Christians all too often have been in conflict over the details and the timing And I always remember what Jesus said. He said, you just keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. Well, yeah, I had a father who studied prophecy in detail and when he thought the Lord was coming in his lifetime, I said, look, Jesus said we don't know the day or the hour. He said, son, it doesn't say nobody knows the year. (laughs) But he did die before the Lord came. You know, I, I, I like that story about uh, the famous evangelical Bible teacher, Warren Worsby, who had been to a conference with all the details on the perfect chart, it's good stuff, I'm not, not, not quarrelling with that at all. Uh, but he said to the speaker, he's a bit of a humorist, he said, you know, I see you're on the planning committee for the Lord's return. I've dropped off the planning committee to be on the welcoming committee because I want to be ready when he comes. Anyway, I have a lot of sympathy with that. You see, because it is possible to spend all our time speculating about the circumstances of his coming, what state the world will be in when he comes, what it will be like before and after his coming. And people do this, and it's a very profitable study, of course. But to do that and neglect the main reason why the New Testament constantly talks about his return and causes us to think about his return. And you know what that is? Every time I read about the coming of Christ in the New Testament it is to promote a holy and fruitful life. And it's saying, you'll be ready to meet him. Live in the light of his coming. And I do know students of prophecy who never even mention that. So that's a challenge. You know, I promised somebody, I don't know why I do this when I come to Boulevard, but I promised somebody I would show you again my favorite version of the Bible, Life Application Bible, because every time they're coming to the Lord's Mansion, it's in a life application context. And what I like about my special Life Application Bible is that when I open it, something happens. I try. I've tried several times to give you a new building you could claim on the insurance. Uh, but time, I never burnt the place down yet. Well, I have one more cup. But listen, when I open this book, something happens. It's a trick Bible, of course. But when I open the Bible, it's exciting. And that's how it's supposed to be. It's a life application book. And when you read about the coming of Christ, you should get excited. Something's going to happen. And it should apply to the way you live. Because he will do something big. He'll step into history again and he'll bring about astounding changes that are prophesied in his word. And our number one priority should be to be ready to live every day as, as James called us. He said, You live with patience, you live with steadfastness, you live with honesty because he's coming. And that's what the passage says. So he's telling us, You live in the light of his coming and you look forward to it because. The judge is standing at the door. I mean, Christ is coming, yes, as king, but as judge. If you're a believer in Christ, of course, if you're a born-again believer, you are a forgiven sinner. So you can look forward to his coming because, because you see, we look back as well as forward. We look back to his first intervention, the cross. And because of that event, because of the cross, we can look forward to being with him forever. So, for the believer, and this is a wonderful, wonderful passage, the description of God's character as judge goes alongside an explanation of his nature. It says, yes, the judge is standing at the door, but for the believer, the judge is full of compassion and mercy. I'm glad verse is there because it's a summary statement about God that gives me confidence as a failing sinner that when I stand before him as judge, I can stand without fear. He's merciful and compassionate. Now, you be clear about this. so people run away with these verses. Oh, God's merciful and compassionate. I have nothing to worry about. Listen, this verse gives no grounds for embracing universalism. Somehow, even in some evangelical circles, this idea of universal salvation is, is getting traction. I want to tell you, the future for those who reject Christ is very, very different. As you know, I like to read C.S. Lewis. I was struggling a while back about explaining this delay. Why doesn't God do something? And I realized part of the reason is God is compassionate, not willing that any should perish. The return is not rushed. Because the Lord's interested in our salvation, your salvation. And I read this of C.S. Lewis. If you're a universalist at heart, read, hear this. I read it 60 years ago, but I just checked it again. It moved me when I was a youngster, a little teenager, and it did today. He writes, when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right, but... What's the good of saying you're on His side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, something else comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it will be too late then to choose your side. I read that. Oh, i got to preach the gospel of choice for Jesus now. Because he's not willing that any should perish. That's part of the reason for delay. And that's the big picture. It's solemn, yet it's an expiring backdrop to James' exhortation to live with steadfast patience, always being totally honest. You know, you could read this and think, well, it's great, a little call to tweak up my life a bit. It's not that. It's a call to live consistently in a distinctive way, ready for the Lord's assessment. You see people say, well, honest is the best policy. Not true. Honesty is the only policy if you're a Christian. For those who live remembering that the judge is at the door, honesty is the only policy. And it's not just being patient. You should be patient. It's patient constancy in the realization that patience leads to something wonderful eventually to make us like Christ. So it, 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 it has a goal like everything else that God does. And notice that James motivates us to meet this challenge, the challenge of living and speaking distinctively in two ways. First, we've already discussed this. He emphasizes the second coming of Christ. That should motivate us. But secondly, he gives us two great examples to follow. He talks about the farmer waiting patiently for his crop to remind us that patience is fruitful. It pays off. And then there's an example of the Old Testament prophets, especially Job, to remind us patience brings blessing. So we look at these two examples of results of patience. He spells them out first with this farming example in verses 7 and 8. He talks about farmers cultivating crops. Most of us are city kids here. We forget that, that, that it takes time and patience to grow stuff. And behind what he's saying... Uh, He gives us um, a real call to be patient because of the results of patience. Remember, actually, he said it right at the beginning of his epistle. You've been studying James systematically, and I'm glad of that because he's already said, look, faith grows by patience, and and it becomes something, something wonderful, like a mature character. Do you remember this verse, To Show Patience is Fruitful? James 1 consider it pure dry my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience finish its work so that it may be mature and complete not lacking in anything patience leads to this wonderful fruit maturity now of course if you're a farmer patience needed because you don't see the fruit right away you're growing crops, you have to plant, and you have to wait in hope. And farming's all about working and waiting. That's what it's about. It's, it, it's waiting, and it's that, it's tough. We have it in Canada, we've got crazy weather, will the crops ever grow? And of course, it seems to us to be a, a, an enormous amount of time waiting for something to happen. But you remember, time something God has in infinite amount. We think time flies. Well, it does when you're having fun, they say. But, but for God, time, <laughs> what's time? It's something he put in place at the moment of creation, but it's something that that's outside God's experience because he's got inf- infinite infinity. But on earth, we're bound by time. And we, we want, you know, we get exasperated. We go, how long, oh Lord, how long? How long? <laughs> I can't resist this little... <laughs> This was a cry of my friend Charlie Brown. I don't know what you know, but in the Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown was a very patient guy, and Lucy, the rascal there, used to hold a football and say to Charlie Brown, you come running up and kick it. She did this time and time again, and every time, whoa, she pulled it away. And this poor, patient guy still tried it, until eventually says, oh, how long, oh Lord? Quoting the Psalms. How long, oh Lord, how long? And Lucy says, how long? All your life, Charlie Brown. All your life. And it is all our life that we wait. It's not... It's all our life unless Jesus comes tomorrow. a distinct possibility. See, because what we think of as delay, God is, is actually God's tool for soul building and for developing a quality that actually is so hard for us to achieve patience. But you see, growth and fruit fruit requires that, but it requires more than time. Actually, it requires some storms. You don't get seeds germinating and developing without the rain. And that's what James is beginning to say now. He says there are two storms, the early and late rains, are what he talks about. And that early rain it's, it's like the fall rain in New Testament in Palestine. The fall rain is what helps the seed to germinate. And then the, the late rain, the, the spring rain in Palestine, the late rain ensures strong growth. So it's saying you need these storms. The late or spring rain swells the grain to be fully developed to uh, germinate it first and then be a ripe crop. And germination and development requires two buffeting rainstorms. If you're going to get that long for outcome, that wonderful fruit, a harvest after days of hopeful waiting. Very nice analogy. Just reminds us that we have to allow things to come into our lives to develop us. And God does that. Romans 5, wonderful scripture on this. Romans 5, 3 to 4. We glory in tribulations also. You know, the Bible is so unusual. It talks about joy in trouble, glory in tribulations. Why? Because tribulation brings what? Patience. And what does patience bring? It brings experience and hope. You see, there's fruit from it. Now, of course, it's very easy to be patient when everything's going your way. I mean, you're having a great day, a wonderful sunny day, things are, family's happy, everything's great. <laughs> it doesn't take much patience to go through a day like that. But the tough thing is to be patient and calm when the circumstances are adverse. I certainly find that tough. You see, Romans five three, with its call to glory and tribulation, it's a very tough scripture to put into practice. I read that. But I can't say I do it all the time. And what James is encouraging us to realize is that it's actually in times of stress when you're receiving the rain that this impatience, this inability to wait for the crop can lead actually to ruin. And the choice is, I love this quote from Oswald Chambers, just get this, no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering, but he chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. The issue is God's will. That God's plans work out and it might mean suffering. And scripture is very clear on that. So James calls for patience, he does it twice, but interesting thing, when the two times James calls for patience, every time, he goes back to one of his favorite themes, you have it already, you've been studying the book, you're now at chapter 5, and he's talked a lot about the tongue, and he warns here about two sins of speech, number one, grumbling in verse 9, number two, Misleading or devious speech which is dishonest in verse 12 very important sins of speech we need to talk about those as James brings them up because he's already pointed out think back to your studies he's already made it clear in chapter 3 that the tongue is untamable (laughs) he said no one can tame the tongue Jane and I were talking about that you know uh, we're getting adjusting to each other and sometimes I say things that I shouldn't say and I Think about that. and I'm very thankful by the Spirit of God the Lord can keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a prayer I pray frequently. You know, I'm a big talker. I don't know when to keep quiet sometimes. And I need to pray that. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Because a tongue is a... Well, James says it's an unruly member. And he's getting back again in this chapter, to to the sins of the speech. And it's true, isn't it? Can you not remember? I'm sure you can remember the last time you grumbled. And he says in verse 9, don't grumble against one another or among one another. And it's a very easy thing to fall into. I, I have a problem, like everybody else. I like someone to blame. I love, I mean, this... We love to have someone to blame. I miss it when the kids left home because I was one of the kids then. And of course, when I lived on my own without Vivian for a couple of years, I found it difficult because for the first time in my life, there was only me around, so I had no one to blame. I was responsible for everything. Because it's often our first response When the tide turns against us to find someone to blame. And these two sins actually go, can often compound the two sins of the tongue, grumbling or blaming others, and then speaking untruthful words, they so easily fit together. And that makes a compound sin. Let me give you a a humorous example, not too serious, but in this cartoon, of course, he, he has the big crunch as he hits the garage door, I'm glad he didn't say uh, what he shouldn't say in Boulevard Bible Chapel, but he w- wasn't too happy about it. So he's phoning up and he says, the garage door won't close. I'd like to order a replacement track. He's on the phone and the guy's giving him a, a humorous hard time. It's just one of those things. The car backed into it. Blaming the car, I guess. I don't move, all right. Hey, hey, I really don't move. My wife did it. <laughs> slip into it so easily because he didn't want to admit he'd made a dumb move. And it is sad, more seriously, when the pressures of life are greatest uh, and uh, we can thoughtlessly speak in a way that that really blames others and that mars the unity and friendship you really need for fruit. And James is making it clear and he did this in chapter 3. You've had this, but let me remind you, the harvest of righteousness is shown by those who make peace. And if we grumble our words, they destroy peace. And what James is wanting us to get hold of, it diminishes the harvest. In fact, we're in danger. You've got to put a whole book to play here. You're in danger of being judged for disobedience because you learned in James 2.8 that sin against believers with our tongue is actually disobeying the law of God. I hope you remember that. Because the Lord takes, I mean, people say, well, it's just a minor quirk. I mean, grumbling and complaining, it's just a personality defect. But the Lord takes it seriously in the the friendship of his people. Paul talked about it numerous times. He said in 1 Corinthians ten, don't grumble as some of them did talking about Israel. Because they were killed by the destroying angel. And you suddenly realize, this is serious. Exodus, you remember they came out of Egypt and they got in the desert and it says in Exodus 16.2 in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron murmuring against the elders it's a terrible thing to do 17.3 they said why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst mumbling and groaning against Moses and Aaron and their leadership Oh, may the Lord help us not to be grumblers in the local church. You know, I, I read recently of a little rule that I'd love to apply. It's tough, but it's a useful rule. Some guy said to me, I'd resolve never to say anything that I wouldn't say if it was the last hour of my life. I thought, man, I hope I'd never die grumbling. Imagine dying Grumbling. For a Christian, it's unthinkable. I can't do that, but I'd love to try, that is, to never say anything. I wouldn't say in the last hour of my life. I certainly won't be saying I wish I'd spent more time at the office. <laughs> I'd be talking about relationships and the Lord, I hope. So, and let's stay with this farming analogy because what he's saying is grumbling can eventually diminish and spoil the harvest that a Christian life should yield. And he begins to talk about the results of patience and the fruit and he then talks about the prophets showing that actually patience does bring blessing and he talks now let me talk about Job I'll take that off for a minute because um, it's just one example and, and, and James is saying the Old Testament prophets and I'm thinking of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel and of course Job is the archtypical sufferer they were misunderstood And they suffered greatly for their faithfulness to God. I mean, some of the prophets like Ezekiel, they never did return from exile in Babylon. They didn't see the promised land. I was thinking about that and I thought, is this difficult life of the prophets a sign that God disapproved of them? No, it's the opposite. Actually, suffering was a clear sign that God trusted them with his message knowing they were ready to suffer for his namesake. It's a sign of God's trust. And these prophets, they show great patience. And I realize this is a characteristic God looks for in his servants. Because don't don't imagine as a Christian the Lord promised to keep you out of trouble. I should have when I hear a TV preacher telling people the Lord will keep them out of trouble because it's not in the Bible. What he promised is to be with us in the trouble. When unemployment and cancer and marriage breakdown and things come in our lives, the the Lord's with us. And the trials and difficulties experienced by the prophets are an important reminder of the reality seen throughout Scripture that walking in obedience to God doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life. And any of us that have been through the bereavement of losing a spouse know that. But verse 11 reminds us that patient service is a blessing and it brings blessing to others and Job's a greatest example of that. Now you all know, because I told you last week, that wasn't my passage, but you remember this, that at the end of his life, Job got twice as much as he had before. So he was very much enriched. But more important than that material blessing, given what I said last week, is that patience brought to Job the greatest blessing of all. It wasn't money, he was very rich at the end. But he got to know God more fully. And his final testimony, listen in Job 42.5 was, I heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes see you. That was a breaking of bread this morning. Malcolm started. We haven't seen Christ physically like Thomas, but we see him by faith. Our eyes see him. That is a blessing. We had it this morning. Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible, says his servants... They'll serve him and they'll see his face. And this is a blessing. Psalm has said it. Psalm 17. As for me, I'll see your face in righteousness and I'll be satisfied when I wake in your likeness. That's the goal. Man, does that make suffering different? To see the face of the Lord, to be waking in his likeness. And that's what James is trying to get across to us you think you're bogged down? you think you've got trouble? Patience. Oh, the big hope. The ultimate blessing that we wait for when all sin is gone is that we stand transformed in the presence of the Lord. Scripture is so clear about this. We sing to Him face to face with Christ my Saviour. Face to face, what will it be? And there's no greater blessing than the privilege of knowing God and having a personal relationship with Him And combine that, that we'll get an understanding of his character. It'd be like Joseph who was in the pit, and he was in prison. But he had great blessing at the end of the day, because he was ready when the call came. Now, one more biggie that we have to get to. Verse 12, very practical, always speak truth. I want you to think about this verse because of all this big stuff that James is writing, he starts this verse with above all. So this is important. He says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, this is a matter of primary importance. He's saying, This is really important. Listen to it. And you know why he said that? Hey, it was a large half brother. He'd heard it all from Jesus. Never believed till after the resurrection. Of course, it takes the resurrection to shake a guy who's grown up with Jesus. But he'd heard it all. And he remembered, Jesus said, I tell you, don't swear at all. Either by heaven, it's God's throne, or by earth, it's his footstool, or Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head. You can't make even one head white or black. Jesus said, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And James said, I'm going to say the same thing. And you know how that scripture finishes? I didn't have time to put it on, space to put it on the screen. It says, um, anything beyond that comes from the evil one. And The Lord called the evil one, the devil, what? The father of lies. See, so James is strongly underscoring the Lord's desire that we must speak the truth at all times. And if you always speak the truth, he said there's no reason to swear by heaven or by earth. And swearing is not blasphemy, uh, although a Christian, of course, shouldn't do that. I hope you never swear. But he's talking about oath-taking, which was a very common practice in James' day. People generally took a solemn oath pledged to assure others that what they were about to say was really true and they would certainly do what they said they would do. And James and the Lord said, look, honest people don't need to do that because our character guarantees our words. If if we're true in heart, then our word w- would suffice. Just, just say yes or no because you can be trusted. And certainly in the Christian community, nothing more should be required. But here's a question. Does this mean you should refuse to... Sh- Swear an oath when you're in court. When you when you have an outside legal authority asking you to swear an oath. No, it doesn't mean that. You should never apply you know, you should never apply the Bible in a wooden headed, thoughtless, unbalanced way. Some Christians I think they like to join the lunatic fringe. We're gonna be off. You know, people laugh at those Christians. I can't swear an oath, no, no it it or in court so are it, necessary. Love and balance indicates we should accommodate ourselves when required by law, because hey, the judge doesn't know our character, so say I'm an honest man. I mean and we're called to show respect and courtesy to the state. So don't go misquoting scripture, swearing an oath. It's a tacit confession of human dishonesty. It's necessary in a world where men and women can't be trusted. Oaths are needed because so many people on a regular basis in conversation have no trouble telling lies. So in formal hearings, in court cases, in jury duty, etc. Oaths are necessary. But James says in everyday life, people only need an oath if they think the words wouldn't be believed. And don't think there's anything inherently wrong with an oath. I mean, in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, 16, Hebrews 6, that even God took an oath. Now, it wasn't to do what human oaths do to increase God's credibility. It's impossible for God to lie. But it was to draw out and confirm our weak faith. God condescends to our faults and our weaknesses because we live in a world where lies and deception are commonplace. So it's not that it's intrinsically evil. But we're... You know, do you remember as a kid? I don't know whether you did this as a kid. You used to cross your fingers behind your back and say, I promise. It's okay. I don't have to do it. I have my fingers crossed. People do that. Businessmen shake hands with their fingers crossed. I don't have to do it. (laughs) It's a clear demonstration. You really can't trust my word. The Pharisees were experts at that stuff. But it's wrong. You've seen it in the states. Do you remember when Clinton, President Clinton, I should be respectful, um, had inquiries made into his sexual misconduct, and he said, "Well, it all depends what being alone means." I mean, be, you know, he said one stage. He said it depends on the meaning of the, what the meaning of the word is. Is because it's just deceitful use of language. I mean, you was say, "Did you do it?" Yes or no. How many public inquiries into misconduct claim memory loss? I I can't remember. Real objective truth in many areas is discounted these days. You know, Vivian died in the hospital because they punctured her lung the night before the surgery. I didn't find that out for a long time. I thought her heart had failed. When I found that, I said to the doctors, did you or did you not puncture Vivian's lung as a cause of her death? Impossible! to get an answer I just wanted to say yes or no I wasn't going to sue them God is sovereign I said what God did but I, it's impossible to get people to say yes or no you've got to model it in the family give your kids a straight answer you know Jane has a, a special needs daughter wonderful lady 40 years old she sends these very simple texts about 5 times a day check with her mum what's going on but every time she asks a question it's wonderful. She asks a question. You know, can she go and buy this doll or whatever it is because she's you know special needs? But she always says yes or no. Don't mess me about saying yes or no. It's wonderful. See, she's got a limited capacity. She wants to know, and that's what James said. It said, don't equivocate. Do what's right. You know, we had a big case in the States when I got here. This guy, Brian Williams, he was a managing editor of NBC Nightly News. Anchorman. You probably, if you watch TV, know all about it. And his his job as a journalist was to report the truth. Well, he apparently he was exaggerating. There was an incident when he was covering the Iraq war, and, um, well, he exaggerated his role. Within days of his apology... He took leave of absence, and he was suspended. Suspended now with six months' pay. But you see, the fallout from exaggeration provides a lesson because the Bible teaches when you witness, when you tell the truth, that 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 it's got to be the truth. Exaggeration for a journalist or a Christian witness is an embellishment to the truth, and it's something James talks about. And James says. Hey, the Lord who is truth wants truth. I got to finish just notice this time. Psalm fifteen. Listen to this, Lord. Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who speaks truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who casts no slur on others. Oh, when I think what I've said about people in my life, sometimes unchecked facts. Exaggerations. I'm an excitable guy. I'm prone to exaggerations. I've got to take this seriously. No evasiveness, no inconsistent reports, no exaggeration to look good. This is not to be part of your behavior. You don't pad up your CV when you're applying for a job if you're a believer. Scripture's so clear. So this is it. James says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, don't swear, not by heaven or earth, by anything else. All you need to say is yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. That doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. Of course not. But as you wait for the Lord to come, or maybe to call you home, it's quite likely some of us will go to heaven that way, isn't it? Just wait patiently. or stand firm and be totally honest. Because look up. Luke 21, Your redemption draws nigh and blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival. Oh to be vigilant and looking up and living honestly. It's the greatest blessing you could know. May God help us to do it. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. We just pray you'll help us to respond to it and please you in that way and know joy in our life to be those who speak truth from the hearts never uttering slander doing no wrong with our tongue help us Lord we need it we're weak and poor and sinful in Jesus name we pray for this blessing I wanted to sing Jesus is Coming, but the time has gone. But remember, He is. And tonight, the last talk on the seven churches. Four in one night, that's a bargain price. Join us.